Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is probably one of the best-known yet least-read or least-heard sermons in history. Now, many are familiar with the title, yet what is likely less known is how God mightily used that sermon, particularly on that day, which might have been the second time it was preached. The flames of revival were indeed burning in many places at that time. One pastor noted how more came to him in one week in deep concern about their souls than in the whole 24 years of preceding ministry. And that kind of story was repeated in various places. That was the kind of thing that they were seeing at those times, in those times. But in Enfield, Connecticut, that kind of thing hadn't happened, at least not yet. Enfield, Connecticut was an area that was apparently, to use language from uh, Ian Murray, it was an area that was untouched by the awakening, and it had a, a reputation of indifference, a reputation of resistance to the work of God. But the God who never met a wall that was too big that he couldn't bring down, or a heart that's too hard that he couldn't turn it to flesh, purposed to move in Enfield, Connecticut that day, through Jonathan Edwards, through the preaching of that message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And through that message, a message that contains warnings with image upon image of divine judgment, God moved in a mighty way. You go through the message and you see things like this. With application to those who are outside of Christ, Edwards would say things like, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. On July 8th, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut, Jonathan Edwards started that sermon, but as the accounts go, he didn't finish that sermon. God so graciously moved and applied the warnings of divine wrath within the assembly, within that meeting house on that day, that there were cries, there was groaning that was heard throughout the meeting house, there were shrieks that were uh, accounted as happening as well. It was a mighty work. Ministers prayed with people. The, The sermon at some point was cut short, and the ministers prayed and spoke with the people And it appears that many, at least in that assembly on that day, came to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that account is important, particularly as we come to the passage that is before us. Because before us is a passage that repeatedly warns of divine judgment. The God of kindness. This is how I think you should see what what we're about to see in verses 5 through 7. The God of kindness and truthfulness in his kindness repeatedly warns about the outpouring of his holy justice. You think of the account in Genesis 19 when Lot is speaking to his sons-in-laws about the judgment that's going to come and they think that he was joking. Genesis 19 verse 14. They thought his warnings of divine justice were a joke. And they were consumed by divine justice not too long after. You think of Felix, who heard Paul's witnesses concerning faith in Christ. 
on more than one occasion, but one particular occasion we're thinking of at this moment is Acts 24. In Acts 24, Paul spoke to Felix concerning faith in Christ. We see that in verse 24. Felix heard Paul's words about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And although he was afraid, and the text even tells us he was afraid, so there was something in his mind as he was thinking about the judgment to come. He was afraid, but he told Paul, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. You read on, and you get the impression that that conviction didn't appear again. The mistake that Felix made, which was a serious one and an ongoing one, was that the message of judgment was for another day, not that day. And I say, oh, how foolish and fatal it is to make Felix's mistake. Think think of the world in which we live. All of the suffering that we see in the world around us, all the suffering that this world has known happened because a message, a warning of divine judgment was not heeded. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the misery that awaits those who spurn God's gracious warnings is far worse than the worst that this world has to offer. But far greater than the highest heights of creaturely joy. Whatever you conceive the heights of creaturely joy to be, far higher is the blessedness that awaits all who by the grace of God receive the Son of God who bore the wrath of God on behalf of all who would believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins. So I want you to see that such messages, right? You look at that example that I just gave. Such messages, they don't only save sinners. And at the end of the day, we know it's the Spirit of God applying the Word of God, and that's the means by which a sinner is saved. But it's not only those kind of things that happen when teachings of divine judgment are set forward from the Scriptures. It can also spur on saints. Saints, those who have been washed by the blood of Christ, those who have been set apart by Christ, they can be spurred on towards good works, spurred on to let go of that which is sinful or that which is silly or that which is spurious, to let go of those things, to see with a renewed sense how holy God is, how serious it is to be the people of God, how serious it is to think that Christ bore our wrath, to to see that with a renewed sense of sobriety and subsequent gladness. These kind of messages, studying through verses 5 through 7, can bring a renewed sense of the holy calling of walking and serving well the holy God that we know and serve. It can beget reactions, the kind of which happened at Enfield under the preaching of Edwards. It can beget godly change in one way or another before the sermon is even concluded. May it be. As we make our way into the text, I first just want to create some context. We began studying through the epistle of Jude last week. And last week we saw how this was the epistle that Jude almost did not write, right? He was writing to those that he identified as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, as those who were sanctified, set apart, to those who were beloved by God, to those who were um, sanctified, called, kept for, kept by Jesus Christ. We went through the second half of verse 1, we saw the variants that could be included therein, and we were reminded that that's God's identification of us. So just a quick reminder, if you have been identified by somebody else as such and such, you would do well to read the second half of Jude verse 1 to be reminded of how God sees you as one who is called, one who is sanctified slash beloved, one who is kept in and kept for and kept by Jesus Christ. 
So Jude was going to write to them about their common salvation. That was the intent, at least initially. But then as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, instead he wrote to exhort them to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. There were tares among the wheat. There were wolves among the sheep. There were those within the assembly that were like pathogens within the body, causing damage. And at least one mechanism of action of these pathogens was, as we saw last week, they would take a doctrine like the doctrine of divine grace, a beautiful doctrine, a precious doctrine that we are to treasure. They would take it and they would twist it and use it as an excuse for immorality, for licentiousness, for lewdness, for all kinds of unrestrained moral behavior. The assembly needed to contend for the faith. And Jude would tell them how. We haven't really gotten there yet. You're going to see that later on in the epistle. Jude unpacks how they are to contend for the faith, how they were to and how we are to. We'll see that, Lord willing, later on in our study. But for right now, we're going to get to verses 5 through 7, and we're going to see as Jude sets before them the serious nature of of where rebellion leads to. This is what they were contending against. They were contending against such ones who are on this kind of path. And Jude is going to set before them three examples from the Old Testament. We begin in Jude, verse 5, where we read, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I told you last week that Jude likes triads. Get used to hearing that because we're going to be seeing, Lord willing, more triads along the way. And here's another one, the first at least. The first reference to three examples of Old Testament examples of God's righteous judgment. It's as though these examples in the past predicted the inevitable future of those who persisted in wickedness and did not repent. And and that's the idea. Just kind of see this contextually right away. That it's as though Jude is saying to the Christians, I want you to see the serious nature of what's going on. That you have those within the assembly who are turning the grace of God into lewdness, and they likely think they are immune from the judgment of God. And perhaps even those that he's addressing, those who are sanctified and called and beloved and kept in and by Jesus Christ, perhaps they did not realize or they were not aware of either the infiltration or the serious nature of the apostasy of the falling away. When you hear that word apostasy, think falling away. It was right before their eyes within the congregation. And so Jude's examples were a reminder of what the people already knew. That rebellion against God does not lead anywhere good. It leads to God's judgment. And Jude began by writing, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this. So he's going to remind them about three different uh, accounts from the Old Testament. Three different accounts. That they likely knew. They had known at some point, probably not before their mind's eye at this point, but he wants to remind them. But the point is that they didn't know those stories as they ought to have known them. And this is important. I think this is a good application for all of us. It's one thing to know the story, the historical account of said event in, say, the Old Testament. It's another thing to heed its proper application and instruction. You are not to just take the information from the Old Testament and look at it as just, you know, information that you are to gather into your mind. You are not to say, read the story of Samson, the historical account of Samson, the same way that you would watch a motion picture. 
It's not for your entertainment. Maybe there is a dynamic in which you are entertained and thrilled by the word of God. Yes, but you are to heed the instruction and admonition to kind of draw language from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. We must know the narrative, yes, but we must know them as we ought to know them. Remember, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for doctrine, for correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. If all we're getting is information, if all we're getting is entertainment, we're not hearing as we ought to hear. We're not knowing as we ought to know. Do you see that? So important for us to learn, and I think that's something Jude is even teaching them, even with that opening remark, and of course by the examples that come. So he proceeds to the first example, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude is recalling to his readers that the story of the Exodus was not a happily ever after story. The generation that was delivered from Egypt, and I'll specify the dynamics of that generation a little bit later on, but the generation that was delivered from Egypt was destroyed in the wilderness. You ever think about that? God had been so patient. Make no mistake about it. And I do think a lot of people make a mistake about it, namely about God's patience. And some people have this misnomer that when you go through the Old Testament, I just see wrath. I see see wrath. If you're reading through the Old Testament rightly, you're seeing patience and patience and patience. Yes, you're seeing wrath. Yes, you're seeing holy and divine justice. You're seeing it in the Old Testament. You're seeing it in the New Testament as well, too. You're seeing it in places like Revelation. You're even seeing it in places like Acts 5. You're seeing it in both places. But I think it can be so often overlooked in the Old Testament that God was indeed so patient, so gracious. The people seemed unrelenting in their rebellion. I I want to walk through all of these in great detail with you, but I won't. But I'm going to set before you an an account, an enumeration of examples. The people were grumbling and complaining before they even crossed the Red Sea. If you look at Exodus 14, they're at the Red Sea and they're grumbling. And then the Red Sea is parted. They go through the Red Sea. They are delivered. They see that Pharaoh and the Egyptians are judged. They're celebrating for a little while. They're singing the song of Moses. They're revering highly Moses and so on. You'll see that in the account. But then not too long after, you get to Exodus 15, and they're complaining again. They're complaining that they're going to die of thirst, as though the God who brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm was going to let them die of thirst three days after and so on, after he delivered them from Egypt. So they complained. And then the examples could go on. In the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation complained against Aaron and Moses. They lamented the hunger that they had and the food that they had left behind in Egypt. And even asserting that they were brought into the wilderness to die. You go through um, Exodus, Numbers, even Deuteronomy. It it was like an anthem of the people. You brought us here to die. God hates us. He brought us here to die. They kept complaining. And before I go on, let me just, to provide a creaturely example of this, imagine if your children, when they became hungry and thirsty, accosted you and said something like, doubtless, you've brought me to the ripe age of eight years old to let me die of hunger and thirst in this kitchen. What would you say? You might say, well, your language is a little impressive. It's also unnecessary and overly theatric, 
but do you know me so little? Do, do you know so little about me and my character? Has all the provision that I've provided you and everything that I've done for you up until this point meant nothing to you that you could just think that because you're hungry in this moment, I'm going to let you die? And that provides for us a little, little creaturely example of what the Israelites did over and over again. And what did God do, by the way? See his grace over and over. What did God do? Well, previously, he had given them water to drink, drink when they were complaining. He makes bitter water sweet. What does he do when they're hungry for food? He rains down bread from heaven. That's what he did. He rained down bread from heaven. People continued to rebel, by the way. You keep going on. Moses tells them, all right, you, you, hey, make sure you eat all the food. Don't leave any till the morning. And you know what some of the people do? They leave it till the morning. And then it breeds worms. It begins to stink and so on. But then they have more instruction. You're not supposed to go out on the Sabbath. Do not go out on the Sabbath and collect. And what do some people do? They gather into groups and they go out on the Sabbath and they, they begin to collect. And the examples go on and on. When they camped in Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink, they not only contended with Moses, but as Moses put it in Exodus 17 verse 4, they are almost ready to stone me. And what did God do? He brought forth water from a rock. So gracious. They keep complaining. Look how gracious he is. And the examples could go on. I, I would love, I would love to go through all of them with you. Think about what they did. Think about the golden calf. Look at Numbers 11. Look at the examples of complaining early on in Numbers 11. Look at the, numbers, the, the examples of complaining as you go on in Numbers 11 from the mixed multitude. They're yearning for what they had back in Egypt to the point where there's lamentation going on through all the camp. Amazing. Amazing. But the culmination of their rebellion and the levying of the sentence concerning the negation of access to the promised land came with the congregation-wide unbelief that was surfaced in Numbers 13, verse 1, essentially through the majority of Numbers 14. Perhaps you recall the story. Doubtless Jude's readers did. Twelve men from each tribe of Israel were commissioned by Moses to go and spy out the land that Yahweh had promised to give the children of Israel. And if you recall the story, they went. And when they returned, they brought back evidence that the land was indeed a fruitful land. They brought evidence. They showed people the fruit. Numbers 13, 26. They told them that the land truly did flow with milk and honey. Numbers 13, 27. Yet at the same time, the 10 spies, 10 out of 12, spread a report of fear, essentially saying, there's no way we can go and take the land. And they made the case for it too. They provided evidence and rationale for their doubt. They said in Numbers 14, 28, that the people of the land are strong, the cities are fortified and very large, and the descendants of Anak are there. But if you recall the story, Joshua and Caleb speak up. They speak up and they said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are able to overcome it. They plead with the people, but the people won't hear it. As a matter of fact, the 10 spies dig their heels in even deeper. They become more entrenched in holding to their report of unbelief. And in the next chapter, we find that the people, the people within the assembly, the congregation began to cry and weep and complain against Aaron and Moses. If you look in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 1, we see that they complained in their tents that it was because Yahweh hates them that he brought them out of Egypt to deliver them into the hand of the Amorites. Deuteronomy 1.27. You see that? Just as a quick pastoral side note. No matter what he did, their view seemed to not change. He hates us. He wants to destroy us. He's doing these things because he's setting us up to die. They had a warped view of God, and they just kept holding on to that warped view. 
They even said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. We're done. We're done with this whole pattern of things. We're selecting a new leader, and we're going back to Egypt. Numbers 14, verse 4. You look at Numbers 14, verses 7 through 9, Joshua and Caleb plead with them. You look in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, Moses pleaded with them. And how did the congregation react? You see it in Numbers 14, they take up stones to stone them. And at that point, enough was enough. The glory of the Lord descended. And it would be at that point, as the glory of the Lord descended, the sentence was eventually communicated. Upon the tabernacle of meeting for all to see, the children of Israel saw the glory of the Lord descend, and the sentence was eventually communicated. Joshua and Caleb would enter. Those under 20 years old would enter. But those from 20 years old and above would die in the wilderness. Now you could see why this would be so important for Jude's readers to know. Not just knowing the story, but knowing the implication, the application, the instruction, and the admonition that would come from the story. The false teachers were turning the grace of God into lewdness. They kept sinning against the grace of God. Think children of Israel just kept sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning against the grace of God, complaining. It's not enough. You're not doing enough. You want us to die. If you don't do what we want you to do, it's as though you hate us. They kept complaining, even as these false teachers kept sinning against the grace of God amidst the patience of God. And the example of the Israelites in the wilderness shows that you cannot live in unrepentant, willful rebellion against God under the guise of embracing grace and not undergo judgment. It's not just psalmists who utter words like, how long? You see that often in the psalms. But Yahweh says words like that in Numbers 14, 11. How long does this people provoke me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? And while their behavioral deviations were indeed many, it appears that the root, at least in one sense, from which this bad fruit came was unbelief. You see that over and over again. Unbelief. Deuteronomy 132, Deuteronomy 9, Psalm 78, multiple times there, Hebrews 3, and so on. Other examples could be given. But I think there's another application, and maybe this is even the more potent application for Jude's readers. The more potent application would be something like this. You could belong to the right community and still commit apostasy. You could be among the right assembly and still fall away from the faith. You could be within the visible assembly of the people of God, yet be at the same time turning the grace of God into lewdness. You think of the children of Israel. They were an example of people who were in the right community. They were a part of the visible people of God, the old covenant community. But please be reminded a proper affiliation does not ensure a person's salvation, right? You could say, hey, I'm a part of TFC, and we go verse by verse through the word, and, and I have a right identification. We hold to the gospel. We hold to the truth that's inseparable to the gospel, but somebody could be among us, and I hope this would not be the case, who can have a proper affiliation, could be in the right covenant community, yet at the same time not be a part of the people of God truly. If you are a son or daughter in God, you know it begins by the grace of God with true saving faith. And that true saving faith must continue to be exhibited in your life. More about that in a moment. 
Because when you look at the way the writer of Hebrews applies essentially the account that Jude is pointing to, wait till you see the application that he makes. It will be the application that I will make taking the words from the, writers of, the writer of Hebrews, but I'll get there in one moment. Further to the point, I want you to briefly consider the textual variant in Jude verse 5. In Jude verse 5, it appears, at least some argue, that the best manuscripts read that Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, just as a quick aside, and I want to get right back to the thrust of this, for those who have erroneously posited, set forth the the notion that the Father in the Old Testament is wrathful and the Son in the New Testament is gracious, not only does that misrepresent the Trinity, because we believe that God is one in essence and three in persons. But Jude 5 is kind of like a torpedo to that ship that deserves to sink anyway. Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So I want to leave aside the abundant textual evidence that Jesus was present in the Old Testament via the angel of the Lord Uh, references there. I'm going to leave aside New Testament writers who write of Jesus's presence in the Old Testament. You could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4, how Paul wrote that Christ was with the people in the wilderness. You could look at John and you could see how John referenced that Isaiah saw Jesus's glory with reference to Isaiah's throne room vision in Isaiah 6. You could see that in John chapter 12. But I want you to think of the significance of this for Jude's readers. That language, if it's Jesus who delivered the people of Israel and then later judged them, what would that say to those who claimed lordship to Jesus, claimed to be under his lordship, yet denied him as their lord, to use language from Jude 4? Those who claim to be delivered by Jesus must manifest a true faith that endures. Right out of the soil of saving faith, ought to spring faithfulness. When God saves a person and that true faith is laid down in a person's heart, that soil, if you will, out of that is going to come forth the fruit of the Spirit. And there will be faithfulness that accompanies faith. And remember, and this is very important, the writer of Hebrews references the same account essentially that Jude is referencing, and he applies the historical, uh, the historical account's instruction in this way. Beware, brethren. He's talking to brethren. Beware, brethren. To the visible people of God, he wants them all to hear this, to those to whom he's writing. Beware, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, note this, this is so important. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So you say, how do I know if I'm truly a Christian? Well, one of the ways you'll know that you're a Christian is if you still believe the gospel that you profess to believe, however, however long ago you profess to believe it. You can know that you have come to partake in Christ if you hold the beginning of your confidence steadfast to the end. You don't want to have a kind of pseudo-belief, a quasi-belief, a quasi-belief that does not endure. That's fool's gold. The real thing endures. 
So there's the first example. Jude then goes on to the second example. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now this second example refers to the fallen angels who engaged in their own kind of apostasy. You saw the children of Israel, right? You saw the signs that God did before them, the revelation that they had. They had so much revelation, so many signs before them, but they fell away from what God had revealed to them. Well, now comes example number two, these angels engaged in their own kind of apostasy. We're told, if you look at the text, they had their proper domain and they had their own abode, but they left. And they're leaving it was an act of rebellion. It's not like they were sent on a mission, like say Gabriel or Michael or something like that. They left in an act of rebellion, their own abode, their own domain. Think of the revelation that they spurned. Despite knowing the presence of God and the glories of heaven, they abandoned it. They embraced rebellion and as a result incurred the judgment of everlasting chains until the greater judgment comes, the judgment of the great day. Now, this may very well be a reference to the incident that is described in Genesis 6-2. I'll note very briefly, I might as well note it now, there are different interpretations on that passage. If you want to see some of the back and forth that you could do as you try to land, as to, where, as to find where you land, you could listen to the message that I preached on um, Noah. In Noah part one, I set before you just my own back and forths with Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4 and saying at one moment you might find me leaning this way and another moment you might find me leaning that way. And I set before you um, both sides and you could see where your convictions fall. But one possibility is that the angels here are the angels who are described in Genesis 6-2, where we are told that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves among all whom they chose. Now again, and I'll walk through this kind of briefly, just so you can have an introduction to the arguments on um, both sides, but in, in this case, one side more than the other, even as I did the Genesis side in the message from Noah part one, I'll kind of Set before you both, within the context of Genesis, if you just go through Genesis, I think it can sound like the godly line, namely the godly line of Seth, mixed with the ungodly line, the ungodly line of Cain. I say that because if you go through Genesis 4, you see the ungodly line of Cain in Genesis 4. You go in Genesis 5, and then you see the, the godly line of Seth. And then you come into Genesis 6, and you say, okay, if I'm just reading contextually through Genesis, this looks like it could be a kind of mingling of an ungodly line with a godly line. Up until that point in Genesis, the term sons of God was not used and was not connected with angels, so it would be fair to consider the possibility that it was speaking of godly men. And now there are other arguments, and I set them forth in the message from Noah part one, but conversely, uh, the phrase the sons of God is used in the book of Job to speak of angels. Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7. Thus, by way of identification, it's biblically coherent to see the angels being referenced here, uh, to see the sons of God referenced here as being angels. Now, why connect the angels described here, particularly with the time of the flood? 
right? Jude is talking about angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. And you would say, why even connect these angels with the time of the flood? Well, there are a couple of reasons. In 2 Peter chapter 2, which has many parallels with Jude, Peter appears, appears to connect the angels that Jude writes of with the time of the flood, at least by way of sequence. It's not definitive, but it's possibly implied. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Two, Jude's language concerning the angels in verse 6 appears to draw from the book of Enoch, a book that Jude will quote from a little bit later on. It's interesting, if you read um, that non-inspired book, it's a pseudepigraphical book, so it's a book that, uh, while it may contain things that, like the quotation that Jude is going to provide, uh, that are worthy of being quoted in the epistle of Jude, it's not a spirit-inspired book of the scriptures. We'll talk more about that when we get there. But interestingly, in that book, we see that Enoch, or the, the writer who claimed to be Enoch, talks about these angels as having left the high heaven, the holy eternal place. And then repeatedly, in what's known as chapter 15, there's repeated emphasis made concerning how these angels had dwelt in heaven. Then you've got verses in there, even though it's not part of the Bible, verse 3, verse 7, verse 10, as I was reading through it, you see a lot of parallels there between them leaving their own abode, them leaving their domain, and perhaps Jude is drawing from that kind of language. A little bit more about this, and then I'll get to the point, because I know there's some people who love this. I mentioned this when I was teaching through Genesis 6. There are some people, like I would be like one of these people, give me everything. Give me both sides of it. I want to know it. And, I, and then there's some people like, are you almost done? Almost done. <laughs> but I'm going to give you a little bit more of both sides. Some additional points. When you look in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you don't see the reading sons of God. You see the reading the angels of God. And that's literally what it is. Hoi angeloi tu theu. So in the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's what we see. Uh, now, I'm, go I'm going off of commentators because I haven't dug a, done a deep dive into the next two bullet points I'm going to give you, but I've read repeatedly that the prominent interpretation of Jude's day of Genesis 6-2 was that it referred to fallen angels. Also, that the prominent interpretation among the early church fathers was that Genesis 6-2 referred to fallen angels. Someone might argue, and there could be rebuttals to this, but nonetheless, it's a good question to consider. If this referred to all of the angels in the original fall, how does that account for Satan's and demons being present on earth? What distinguished these angels so that they would be reserved in everlasting chains for the great day of judgment from Satan and the rest of the fallen angels? So you can see there's a possibility on both sides. And just so you can know just a little bit more of this, some people would say, well, this is what they did. They went and they took from among the daughters of men, wives whom they chose. Jude doesn't describe how that happened. Some people claim that the angels took on physical bodies and had the ability to procreate. First part of that's not hard to see. In Genesis 18, we see angels take on physical bodies. In Genesis 18, we see that angels can sit and have a meal and eat food. First part's not hard to see. The second part is harder to see. Some would say it perhaps contradicts 
Matthew 22.30, that the angels do not marry, neither are given in marriage. One might argue that such a verse can speak of what angels do not do and not necessarily what these angels in an act of serious rebellion did. It's also possible, if not even more likely, if this is the proper way to see it, that this happened via possession, demonic possession, that the angels left their abode in heaven and they took up residence in men as demons do, perhaps even possessing kings who were powerful and claimed a divine status and engaged in immorality that way, taking whomever they wanted from the daughters of men as their wives. Now, whatever the exact details are, whatever the exact details are, this is the point you are to see. They had a privileged position. They had a privileged position that these angels enjoyed. They had great revelation. They knew the glories of heaven. They knew the presence of God. But it did not immunize them from God's wrath. That's the point that you're meant to see. Whatever the details are, they had a position, they had a glorious position, they left their position, they weren't satisfied with their position, and they left, and now as a result, even now, even till this point, right now, they are reserved in everlasting chains and darkness for the great day. The judgment was so serious that when you look in 2 Peter, you see the language of them being consigned to hell, but arguably uh, the deepest part of hell, Tartarus, a, a Greek word that's only used once in the New Testament right there as though to speak of the lowest pit of hell, the deepest part of Hades. That's where they were consigned to. Now, they were consigned then. They're still there awaiting the great day of judgment, awaiting the great day of judgment. So this reminds us that to rebel against the order of things, as God has prescribed the order of things to be, is to incur God's judgment. To use and kind of build upon an example from Ian Murray, consider a train with volitional capacity. Consider a train that's on the tracks and just is kind of bored with going on the track that is laid out for the train. The, the, the train looks out into a nearby valley or some nearby forest and says, you know, I really want to go there. I'm not content with this track. I really want to go somewhere out there. I want to explore. And if this train had the volitional capability to go off the tracks and actually did, what would happen? It'd be destroyed. It'd be wrecked. The perceived freedom would actually lead to destruction. And this is why I think this is so important for us to grab. This is why it was so important, at least in part, for Jude's readers to grab. To depart from the order that God has prescribed for us in one way, for another, one way or another, to embrace folly thinking it's wisdom, is to embrace destruction under the guise of freedom. All right, you might be tired of putting gasoline in your car. The prices are going up. I don't want to put gasoline in my car anymore. I want to put milk in it. I want, to, I want to put water, orange juice, whatever it is. It's just not the way things work. You can't do it. You could try. You could put it in. But what's going to happen? You're going to do damage to the vehicle because the vehicle is not meant to intake those things. So I do want to say to you, I just want to encourage you, whatever calling God has for you, wherever you are, embrace it. Embrace the purpose for which God has created you, knowing that he did not give you that purpose for endless dissatisfaction, but rather that you might glorify him and in the age to come, and in the ages to come, to use language from Ephesians 2, that you might enjoy endless satisfaction, the ultimate end of which is the glory of God. 
So embrace where God has called you to. Don't commit the foolish kind of apostasy, the falling away that these angels did, perceiving there to be something greater, something more enjoyable outside of the prescription that God provided. This can apply to marriages. This can apply to singleness. This could apply to children. This could apply to the elderly. This could apply to anybody who's in Christ. You take the word of God and you see the prescription prescribed for you and you know that it's not meant to be a weight that drags you into the depths of despair. It's meant to be a vehicle for your joy. Well, that brings us to Jude's third example. In verse seven we read, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, if you're seeing the pattern here, this example might take you by surprise. You got the Israelites, they're God's covenant people. Old Testament covenant people. You have the angels. They enjoy the glories of heaven. Now you come to Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. You're thinking of essentially pagans. You're thinking of those who are of the world. Yet they too committed a kind of apostasy, a kind of falling away. What kind of falling away did they commit? Well, there's a number of possibilities for the kind of falling away that they committed. They had the witness, the revelation of recent history In the not-too-distant past, the world had been flooded. Noah had lived all not too long before. They had even, arguably, the very presence of Lot within the city, giving them moral pronouncements against the wickedness that they were engaging in. Interestingly, when you look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 9, you remember that when Lot tried to dissuade the men of Sodom from taking and raping Uh, the two angels that appeared as men who were staying with him, the people said that this one, and it goes on and says, keeps acting as a judge. And many commentators note the probability or the likelihood that this wasn't the first time that Lot had made moral pronouncements against the people. They had the light of their own conscience, right? To kind of draw language from, draw imagery from Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They had a witness of their own conscience. They had all of these witnesses in one way or another, perhaps even more arguably, and yet they departed from it and they embraced sin. They became known. They were a city that was known for its evil. Early in the Genesis account, when Lot made his choice to dwell in the cities of the plain and pitch his tent towards Sodom, Genesis 13, 12 tells us, that he had done that in Genesis 13, 13, we're told, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. You look at Isaiah 3, 9, it might be 3, 7, but I think it's 3, 9. It talks about the pride of Sodom. They were proud of their sin. They, they, they flagrantly displayed it as it were. They were proud of it. And the sin of Sodom, we'll talk about the sin of homosexuality. It wasn't the only sin of Sodom. The sins of Sodom were indeed many. Through the prophet Ezekiel, for instance, we know that the city was full of pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. The people did not strengthen the hands of the poor and needy. And we're also told in verse 50 that they were proud and committed abominations before the Lord. What Sodom is most known for, though, and the sin we see pursued in the Genesis account, as well as referenced in Jude, I think, was the sin of homosexuality. You look at the the text here. In a similar manner to these, 
So some would argue, and this, there's debate among this, but some would argue this is a reference back to the angels, even as the angels committed a kind of sexual immorality. That's debated, but there's a possible interpretation there. In a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Now the first term, sexual immorality, is a general term. That refers to any kind of sexual interaction outside of God's designed covenant of marriage. So they had that going on in the city. We should tremble at how much that goes on in our world, in our city, in our borough. I just want to remind you, let me, let me, just, let me just make this clear because I don't want anybody to, to not hear this. I want you to hear this. If you are not married, whether you are young or old, and you have interactions with somebody who is of the opposite sex, you're, 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 a, you're a man and you have an interaction with a woman, you're a woman and you have an interaction with a man, that person is to be regarded as your brother or sister in Christ. Well, so first, they should be in Christ, right? You're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. They are to be in Christ. And they are to be regarded as your brother or as your sister until they become your husband or until they become your wife. Do you understand? Please, I don't, I, I don't want it to happen in our assembly where people don't realize that's the way it is. That's God's design. You aren't to, you aren't to, to overlook that. That is God's design. So important. You're not supposed to do with them what you wouldn't do with your own physiological brother or sister until they become something more than your brother or sister. Still your brother and sister in Christ, but your husband or wife. But then we got that second term. If you look at the text, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Gone after strange flesh. I, I would fall uh, among those who say, I think that's talking about homosexuality as opposed to somebody saying, I think the strange flesh is a reference to, you know, them going after angels, even the way the angels went after the daughters of men. The reason why I don't think that's likely the case is because in Jude verse 7, we're told that Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them went after strange flesh. So it's not like the cities around Sodom and Gomorrah went after angels as well. That was a unique case that we see in the Genesis account that Sodom and the people of Sodom went after the two angels. But the cities around them, they went after strange flesh, and I think that's essentially talking about going after physical intimacy with a different flesh than the one a person should. Right? You look at Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that the right physical uh, intimacy is to be found in opposite genders that a husband and a wife and a man and a woman, not a man with a man or not a woman with a woman. We remember that according to the Genesis account, the Lot showed hospitality to the two angels that came to Sodom in the evening, Genesis 19, verses 1 and 2. You remember what happened when the people of the city heard, the men of the city, don't forget the language, young and old, they surrounded the house and demanded that Lot would bring out the visitors. They didn't know they were angels. They just perceived them to be men because they looked like men. But young and old, they demanded that they would bring, that Lot would bring them out, that they might have physical homosexual relations with them. Sadly and seriously, it looks like the young people of that city were groomed to embrace the sin that the older generation had come to embrace. Young and old, 
one mind, one accord, to gather and indulge in this evil. Such, I think, is a warning for us today to be on guard and to make sure that our kids are trained and instructed in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and in the Scriptures. Teaching the compassion of Christ, yes, but also teaching the truth of the Scriptures. The truth of the Scriptures. Remember what happened when their demands were not met, they became more violent. They looked to grab Lot and break down the door. Verse 9 of Genesis 19, when they were struck with blindness, that didn't even stop them. They proceeded to try to find the door. Genesis 19, 11, they pursued the sin of sexual immorality, namely homosexuality in this case, to the point of even pursuing immorality with angelic beings. Genesis 19 illustrates how great the extent of the wickedness was and why the outcry against them before the face of the Lord was was so great and why God's judgment was the outcome. And so in a rather unique historical example of judgment, Genesis 19.24 tells us that Yahweh rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh out of the heavens. Told in verse 25, he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But also it's worth noting that Sodom is not to say once mentioned and soon forgotten. It's referenced a number of times in the Old Testament and New Testament alike as an example of wickedness and as a warning and as an example of God's righteous judgment against wickedness. Here in Jude, we are told that these cities are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Again, it's not enough to know the story. It was necessary then, it is necessary now to heed the warning. You see what God did through the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah? He provided a kind of scale model example of the eternal fire that burns. See the imagery. God sets it forth in the scriptures. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, they were likened to the garden of God. They were beautiful. Beautiful. They were like the paradise of God, the paradise of Eden, as it were. But in a moment, to use language from Lamentations 4.6, in a moment they were destroyed. And Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary, provides examples of Jewish writers who claim that the effects of that judgment were still visible in areas of the Dead Sea. He references Josephus, writing, In fact, vestiges of the divine fire and faint traces of five cities are still visible. He references Philo, saying, Even to this day, there are seen in Syria monuments of the unprecedented destruction that fell upon them in the ruins and ashes and sulfur and smoke and the dusky flame which is still sent up from the ground as of fire smoldering beneath. But you do not have to see what they potentially saw to know what God would have you to know. That that temporal fire however long it burned, is but a warning of the fire that is never quenched. That's what God set it forth as. In the Old Testament scriptures, you have so many beautiful examples of types and shadows of the Lord Jesus Christ. God providing types in the Passover lamb that he's going to send his son, in the priesthood, in the temple, and so on. All of these beautiful types pointing to Jesus. Well, here you have an example of a type of the judgment to come, and that is grace, that is mercy. Heed the warning. That fire that burned... Maybe for a while after, that fire that consumed in a moment is a picture of a fire that will burn forever and will not be quenched. That's not preaching theatrics. 
That's the teaching, the clear teaching of the word of God. I plead with you, don't spurn the warning. Their end does not have to be your eternity. And the way that you avoid the judgment to which this destruction pointed is to embrace the one to which the old sacrificial system, the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where I want to end today. All of us, I know, all of us have likely shared more in common with rebellious Israel who despised, at least in so many ways, their privilege, their revelation that was given to them. We have more in common with the angels who left their domain and Sodom and its surrounding cities than we care to consider. To use language from Edwards, it's as though the waters of God's wrath were stockpiled behind the the dam of his sovereign plan. And our sin would cause the waters to rise higher and higher. And think about this throughout your life. God could have in a moment righteously caused the dam to burst and you would be overtaken with the righteous judgment for your sin. But what did God do for you who are in Christ Jesus? The dam did burst. And upon whom did the waters of your complaining and your doubting and your lusting and your pride and your selfishness fall? They fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The fire of divine judgment that could have fallen upon us and the eternal fire could have been our eternal appropriate abode, but Christ stood in our place. He bore, as it were, the fire of divine wrath, and now because of what Christ has done, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem is our abode. That's our abode. He left his abode, and he came, and he took on flesh, and he bore the wrath that we deserve. so that we could abide with him forever, forever. Hear the warning. See the pictures. Don't don't, don't just look past the pictures. Don't say it's too much. I don't want to see it. Look at it. Force yourself to look at it. It is what's coming. The fire is coming. Flee the wrath to come and treasure Jesus Christ who bore your wrath so you would not have to bear it ever. I encourage you, Christian, embrace a renewed sense of the high regard for the holiness of God and the fearfulness of his judgment. Oh, these verses will do it. If you read these verses, and if the Holy Spirit so ministers to you, illuminates your heart, and you read the accompanying text text to which they point, I believe that by God's grace there will be a renewed high sense. Even now, by God's grace, I hope that there is. I believe that there is a renewed sense of the high regard we ought to have for the holiness of God. Be reminded that in opposition to the Israelites in the wilderness, those on their way to the new Jerusalem must persevere in faith. And true faith brings forth the fruit of faithfulness. Unlike the angels who rejected their abode and sought another, God's children must embrace his purpose and design for their lives. And unlike Sodom and its surrounding cities, the people of the celestial city must embrace sexual purity, must embrace holiness. If God takes sin as seriously as we see depicted in these verses, how foolish would it be to take lightly such sins under the guise of grace? And if God has spared us from the reality that is typified in Sodom's burning through the death of his son, 
Oh, that we might better grasp the gravity of the judgments described here so that, so that we might better appreciate the love that was demonstrated there at the cross. And that's my concluding thought to you. If you better grasp the gravity of the judgments described there in verses five through seven, by the grace of God, you will better appreciate the love, the great love of God the Father, the great love of God the Son demonstrated there upon a hill called the skull upon the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the grave so that all who believe in him would not have to endure what Sodom's judgment pointed to. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great grace in sending your holy son, your eternally begotten son, to take on flesh and to absorb what we could never absorb, to absorb what we would have to endure rightly and appropriately and justly for all of, all of eternity. Thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life for us. Thank you for the greatness of that love that was demonstrated on our behalf. And Father, we pray We pray, Lord, that in us you would so work that we would not turn the grace of God into a license for sin, but it would be by your grace the great motivation that it ought to be for our holiness and our purity. That we would be by your grace not like Sodom, Lord, in many ways. That we would be full of compassion. That we would be humble instead of prideful. That we would walk in purity, Lord. That we would embrace your design and your purposes, not looking to go off the track and suffer wreckage as a result. Oh, Father, may you find us treasuring the cross where the fire of God was quenched on our behalf. And Father, we pray that you would so work among us that if there is anyone here, Lord, that they would see that hasn't seen the great glory of the cross, that by your grace today, the Spirit of God giving them ears to hear, that they would hear the warning. And then treasure the Son of God who died so that they would not have to endure the vengeance of God's holy and righteous justice. Oh, Father, may you, if it be your will, add to your church even this day those who are being saved. And Father, may you find us walking with a renewed sense of gladness and sobriety, Lord. With a renewed sense of um, exhilaration to know you but yet a holy trembling to walk in a way that befits this holy calling that you've given us. Thank you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.